Good morning, Grace Church. Welcome to online church, campus church, home church. I'm glad you could be here this morning. I'm Joel, uh, and I've been invited by the elders board to preach this Sunday, and uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, the gospel in sheep's clothing, and we'll get to what that means in a little bit. Um, when I was asked to preach, I was, uh, thinking of the, I was thinking of the wrong passage, in that uh, a passage came to mind, and when I went to look for it in Scripture, I realized that this was actually two Scriptures that I was talking about. So, um, what I'm going to be talking about this morning is the sheep and the goats, where Jesus talks about the final judgment, where he divides up the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. But I'm also going to be talking about other things as it relates to how Christ evaluates uh, whether or not he knows people, whether, we, whether or not we know him. So what we're going to do is we're going to start off by reading from Matthew 25, uh, from verse 31 through to verse 45, just to set the scene and kind of give us an idea of the, the mental frame that we're going to be using when we're going to be discussing uh, what is the gospel and what is not the gospel, because that's, that's our ultimate end goal. We as believers should be steeped in the gospel message. We should understand what it means intuitively, such that we are not thinking about it actively anymore. It's like that, uh, that saying that they got about basketball, where it's like, you've got to learn the fundamentals so you can forget the fundamentals. And this is who we should be as believers, where we should, we should know intrinsically and intuitively internally understand what the gospel is such that we are transformed by it and we're not even thinking about it anymore. And so we're going to read in Matthew 25 from verse 31 through to the end of the chapter in verse 45. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick in prison? And did not help you. He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So there's two types of people that this passage talks about, that being the sheep and the goats. 
And um, this starts to shed a bit of light on what is the nature of the gospel. So first we're going to look at the sheep. I think it's really kind of interesting in this passage where the sheep are judged righteous, where the king says, you are blessed, take your inheritance in the kingdom prepared for you. And they say to him, us? And it's a surprise to the sheep that they're judged as righteous, especially because when the king says why, they say, when, when did we do that? When the king says, you gave me all these things, you did these things for me, and they're thinking, when did we do that? And so it's a surprise to the sheep. They have lived out their faith. They have served and cared. They have showed love to the world around them, to the people around them, without thought for further reward. And I think that's kind of cool that they are living this internal reality out where they're not saying, what can I get from this? They're not saying, what is the crown going to be for me? They're just saying, oh, that guy's thirsty. I'm going to give him some water. They're just saying, oh, man, that guy needs some clothes. I'm going to give him something to wear. That guy's in prison. I'm going to go visit him in prison. Or they're sick. I'm going to go visit them. They're just, they're doing that because they're transformed internally. Their motivations are the product of an internal change, an internal reality. They're driven by this understanding that these people are valuable in their own right. And that is why I must show them love. That is why I must care for them. That is why I must serve for them. And because, and because that's something that's so intrinsic to who they are, they're not, they're not thinking at the last judgment. They're not thinking when they're getting separated out right and left, oh, it's a good thing I gave water to that guy. Or, oh, it's a good thing I gave clothes to that lady. It, they're just... They're just sort of waiting, what's going to happen here? And when they finally get told, hey, you're righteous and blessed and you're going to get to enter the kingdom, they're thinking, well, what for? Well, because you gave stuff to all these people. You, you served all these people. You loved on all these people. And they're thinking, that was you? And so they're not looking at the numbers of it. They're not looking at the economy of it. They're looking at who are these people and why are they valuable and important. The goats, on the other hand, are judged unrighteous. But they too are also surprised because when the king says to them, I was thirsty and you didn't give me water, I was hungry and you didn't feed me, they're saying, what? When were you there? I didn't see you there. I... I if I'd have known, you know, I would, have give you some, I would have given you something. If I'd have realized it was you, I would have given you clothes. But they weren't looking at the people around them. They weren't living for others. They didn't see those people around them that were in need. And they didn't see the people around them as Christ sees them. They didn't see the people around them as God sees them, as inherently valuable, as beloved, as worth something. They did not live transformed lives. The fruit of their life was not pleasing to Christ. They lived for themselves. They weren't looking out, they were looking in. And that's, that is the difference, I think, between sheep and goats, where the sheep are people that look out and see other people for what they're worth and serve them because they are worth something, because God deems them worthy. And the goats are the people that are just ignoring those people that are not seeing the need around them, that aren't seeing the, the emptiness, the darkness, the, the want, the starvation, the thirst. Goats do not see that. 
So that's, that's an overview of the character of the sheep and the goats. And that is a contrast between what the true gospel looks like in action and what a false gospel looks like in action. There's a further elaboration I want to make on this idea of the false gospel, which is the second half of the imaginary passage that I'd cooked up in my head. It's where, it's where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I first heard that, I was floored because I thought, wow, don't I do that? I, don't I call on the name of the Lord when I pray? Don't I, don't I try to recognize what he's done in my life? How can it be that someone who acknowledges the name of Jesus will not enter the kingdom? That's a scary thought, you know, especially when we're looking at it relative to this passage on the sheep and the goats where it's, where it's like, oh man, like the, the, metrics that, the metrics that God is using to separate these people out, the way that he evaluates us comes as a surprise to some people. And so that made me kind of think, what, what's going on here when Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven? And so I went back into Matthew 7, where this is found, and I realized that this verse, verse 21, is part of a larger statement. So this is Matthew 7, 15 to 23. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I liked how this passage starts off talking about people in sheep's clothing. I was thinking about um, this idea that when we've grown up in a strong denominational tradition, like I, I grew up in a, a Baptist church, and we kind, of very, we kind of rotated, depending on where we were living, between Baptist and Mennonite brethren, very similar on a doctrinal line. Um, and I thought that when you grow up in that environment and when you're steeped in that tradition and you understand the nuances of your denominational convictions, you can start to become convinced that the true gospel is in your church or in your church denomination or your church group to the point where you start to look outside of your denominational convictions and you can say, oh, those people are wrong. If only they believed in baptism by immersion or if only they ascribed to Calvinism in a five-point way, then they would be true believers, but because they don't, they're not. And we, and we start to think that we've got a monopoly on truth. And when we start to believe that, we stop recognizing that we're still redeemed sinners who have been snatched out of the fire by the gospel of Christ. 
and it, because of Christ, that is what makes us justified. It's not because we had all these doctrinal points lined up in a row and, and we have it nailed, right? When we start to believe that, we, we stop recognizing that we can become complacent. We stop recognizing that it's possible that not everybody in the congregation, not everybody in the pews with us, it's possible that they actually don't understand the gospel. It's possible that they aren't there for Christ. We can easily identify that in other churches, in other traditions. We can say, oh, they're so off because they don't believe this. And oh man, look at the hypocrisy there. They don't believe that. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we can also look into other we can also look into other churches where we, we did not grow up with that tradition and we can say, you know, that guy's on, that guy's on. He's all right. He understands what the gospel is. He understands what the truth is. Jesus knows him. He knows Jesus. And so if we can if we can recognize that some people got it and some people don't in churches outside of our own then we need to start recognizing that within our own congregation, some people got it and some people don't. And when we start to realize that, we need to start being very spurred onto self-examination. Can we look at ourselves and say, am I a, a sheep, a true sheep? Or am I a wolf just dressing up as a sheep? And that's what this passage makes me think of some people believe in a false gospel. They preach a false gospel. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Some members of the flock, that is the church, are in it for themselves. They're not looking to say, how do I follow the shepherd? They're not looking to say, how do I take care of my flock, my brothers and sisters? They're just saying, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look out for me first. And they're looking at the sheep around them their, their fellow believers or their fellow congregants, depending on what their conviction is, they're looking at the people around them as people to be used, people to be exploited. And the people outside the church, forget about those guys. These, these people are known by their fruit. That's what this passage is saying here. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, I was thinking about, is there a difference between fruit and behavior? And sometimes I think there is. So, like, sometimes there's not, because if a person is genuinely kind, you will see that in their, in their actions. If a person is truly generous, you will see that reflected in what they do. If they're hospitable, if they're forgiving, if they're patient, you will know that. But some people are just pretending. Some people are being friendly because they know that's easier than being belligerent. Some people are being generous because they, they think of it as a, a sort of a balancing out of the universe. Like it's karma, you know? Like that's not, a, that's not a biblical idea, folks. Karma is not a biblical idea. This is not a balanced world. Just because I do something nice for somebody doesn't mean that the universe owes it to me to do something in return, right? So behavior does not always equate to fruit. The outworkings of a person's life is their fruit. The... the the wake of effect they leave behind them is their fruit. If you see a person who's kind and friendly on the outside, and yet they're leaving a string of broken relationships behind them, if they're, if they're using that relationship to exploit people, 
in in business deals or in in um, in other scenarios where they stand to gain something. That's the fruit. It is. It is. Does what you do nourish other people? Does what you do feed other people? Does the Spirit feed people through you? Like to think about to think about the sheep and the goats. The sheep are the people that are giving the food and the water and the clothing and the shelter and the, and the hospitality and the care. That is the fruit. When I'm reading through this, I think about, I think about um, how important the heart's condition is when it comes to evaluating what is, what is worthy. What is worthy in the eyes of God? I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the first three verses. Paul talks about the primacy of love when it comes to, to what drives our actions, when it comes to what motivates us. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor... And give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This is talking about the contrast between actions and motives. What we do is not as important as why we do it. And this again goes back to that that unpacking of of what sheep are as people that are operating from a a place of internal change. They're people that are operating from, from a place where they love the people around them. They're not doing good things because that's what's going to get them the reward at the end. They're doing it because they love other people. They're, they're living from a, an internally transformed place. And so when we look at the goats or the wolves in sheep's clothing, their deeds and their words don't match their hearts. Just because you're doing the right things doesn't mean that you're internally changed. Why are you doing those things? you got to check yourself. Is your heart drawing you to do those things in a way that's like, yes, I'm doing this because I know it's true. I'm loving these people because I know they're worthy of love. Or are you doing it because you think, this is going to look good the next time a a nomination comes up. Or this is going to look good because uh, I'm the leader of a group in the church and I I don't want to let the image down, you know. Is this going to look good because it's going to get more people drawn in through the door? That's not... That's not what should drive us. That's not what should motivate us. We are to be driven from a place of transformation because the gospel is a transforming thing. The gospel is an embodied thing. So I wanted to contrast kind of what a false gospel is and what the true gospel is by illustrating how the heart's position is the key when it comes to understanding what is the gospel. And I'm going to start by way of some negative examples here by telling you what the gospel is not. And I think this this is one that has been hanging around for a real long time. The gospel is not an exit strategy. How many times have we explained the gospel to people or had it explained to us where it's like the gospel is like getting your ticket punched? It's like the travel brochure to heaven. Hey, this is the gospel. This is how you can get a one-way ticket to paradise forever after. That's not what it is, folks. The gospel is not just getting a ticket to ride. It is not just a moment in time where you say the prayer and now you're good to go. It's something much further reaching than that. 
the gospel is not also just a good example. It's not a how-to manual for how to live your life. And man, how often have we heard that where it's like, hey, here's the manual. No, it's not. That's not what it is. The gospel isn't just the manual. It's not knowing the right things. Knowing the right things to say, knowing the right things to do isn't enough. That is legalism. Those actions, those words don't, don't redeem you. The, the Bible is not a set of options which we can choose and, and sift through and discard. A lot of times we do that too, where we say, hey, because this is a manual, I'm going to pick out the parts that work for me, and I'm just going to ignore the rest because I'm either confused or it's inconvenient. I'm not going to allow it to change me. I'm just going to use it to validate my current choices. Sometimes we let the Bible, we interpret the Bible by choosing what applies to us instead of letting the Bible interpret us because it all applies to us. It all applies to us. Don't get trapped in that idea where it's like, oh, that was for then. This is for now. No, it's all for now because the Bible isn't a manual. It's not, having the, it's not a set of right answers. It's, it's an exposition of a person. It's an exposition of a person. Like, it's, a, it's the story of God. When we read through the Bible, the Bible is the narrative that God is telling. And now here we are, and He's still telling a story. He is still telling the story of the church and of redemption. I know we're, we're uncomfortable with tension. We're uncomfortable with tension when we read the Scriptures. Sometimes we... Sometimes we can fool ourselves into thinking we have it all figured out, and we often do that by ignoring the confusing parts or ignoring the paradoxes or the mysteries. Um, when we do that, when we, look at, when we look at the Bible as an example and a how-to manual, we make it into a system. We make God into a system instead of making it into a relationship, instead of recognizing it as a relationship. The gospel isn't a system. It's not a rule set to be followed. It's a revelation of something much bigger that's rooted to a person. I think something else we need to remember, kind of remembering that this isn't a system, is the gospel is not an excuse to exclude. This is something that we, we do quite a bit, particularly when we come from a, a strong set of convictions, like when we were raised in a, in a particular tradition. We often confuse the law with the gospel. And the law and the gospel are not the same thing. When, when Moses went up to Sinai, he received the law. And that was a way of telling people that you're either in or you're out. And it was a way of delineating this outer boundary of what it means to be with God and what it means to be without him. But when Christ came, he went, up to the, he went up to the Mount of Olives and he preached the Sermon on the Mount where he laid out this idea that there's more to it than just the law. This is a heart condition. This isn't just doing the right things externally. This is having an internal reality. The law is the boundary. The gospel is the center. We can so easily pride ourselves on being right. I know the right answers. We don't like being wrong. Nobody likes being wrong. We like to think of ourselves as having it figured out. And that guy over there, he doesn't. I'm better than him. 
We don't like to see ourselves as being on fundamentally equal footing when we're standing before the throne of God and he's saying, okay, who's a sheep, who's a goat? And it doesn't matter what we knew. It matters who knew us. And oftentimes we can think of our, we can think that the, the, the understanding that we've come to when it comes to interpreting the scripture and to, to knowing God, knowing Jesus, oftentimes we think that our wisdom is our own. Like, I came up with that answer. Wow, this revelation about who God is. I came up with that. But did I come up with that? Or did something, did someone give me an understanding about what was going on when it came to the gospel? When we use the gospel as an excuse to, to shut people out because I'm right and they're wrong, they don't know it, they got to get themselves straightened out, that is us forgetting who we were. That's us forgetting who we were before Jesus stepped into our lives and transformed us. We, he didn't wait for us to be on. He didn't wait for us to get it. He didn't wait for us to be right and understand. He stepped into our lives and transformed us. We forget how we were ignorant. We forget how we've been growing. We forget ourselves five years ago. We forget ourselves ten years ago. We think, this is the way I've always been now in this place of understanding that's totally shutting down the work of the Spirit. That's totally forgetting what the gospel is. It is not us sussing it out. It is, it is Christ giving us an opportunity to know him. It is him revealing himself to us. When we shut people out because they don't have the, the salvation of the scriptures or the gospel yet, we forget the joy of our salvation where we suddenly realized it's not up to me. It's up to Jesus. And he said I could be with him. He said he could wash away all the misdeeds and the sins of my past. He said that I could be in right relationship with God. What is the gospel? Primarily, the gospel is the relationship we have with Christ. When John talks about the Word in, in the first chapter, John 1, he says the Word in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wasn't talking about the Bible. He was talking about Jesus. He was talking about a person. The Word is not just the Scriptures. It is a person. So what does it mean to know the Word? It means that we need to know Jesus. Jesus is the message embodied. John 8, 31 to 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Later on in the scriptures, Pilate is looking Jesus in the face, and he says to him, ironically, what is truth? Not realizing that truth stands before him. Jesus is the message of the gospel embodied. Knowing Jesus helps us to properly understand the Word and the Scriptures. It helps us to understand the gospel message because it helps us to understand the person of God. The gospel is a relationship with Christ and with God. And the gospel is a reliance on the righteousness of Christ. Something that the New Testament tells us and something that the Old Testament demonstrates to us is that our works are insufficient regardless of what they are. And this goes back to this idea of 
Prophesying doesn't matter. Doing miracles doesn't matter. Romans 3.10 tells us that there is no one who is righteous, not one. To be righteous is to be on right standing with God. It's to be in a good social relationship with God. It's not to have all the boxes ticked on your list of moral obligations. It's to know God and to be into good, in good relationship with Him. Righteousness is a, is a social standing with God. And because it's a social standing with God, it is a moral standing. If we are righteous people, we are in good relationship with the one who makes us righteous. We are in good relationship with Christ. It's Christ's righteousness. It is Christ being accepted by God that allows us to stand with him, to stand behind him, clinging on to his, the edge of his robe. And God says, Jesus, you're righteous. And the people that you have chosen and the people who have chosen you, they are also righteous because you are righteous. It is not the people who did good things. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that our righteous acts are like filthy rags. There's a whole sermon besides on that, like just what filthy rags are, but it's like they're like used toilet paper kind of filthy rags, you know. It's like a kid drawing a beautiful mural in crayon on the wall and saying, hey, look what I made. Well, your heart might have been in the right place, but that is not what makes you righteous. It is not following the, the rules. Following the rules doesn't make us righteous. Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for anyone who believes. And so this fence that Moses set up in the Old Testament where he sets up the Ten Commandments and he says, if you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. When we put ourse- throw ourselves at Christ's mercy, he satisfies those requirements of the law. And let's face it, were we ever going to nail it? Were we ever going to get that law perfect? We can trick ourselves into believing that. But a surrender to the righteousness of Christ puts us into the place where the law can no longer condemn us because we are under Christ. Because it is following Christ that makes us righteous, not following the law. The gospel is a real life that is lived out. When we think that Christ is the message of the gospel embodied, sent to us by God, then we also should understand that when we become unified with Christ, we too become the message of Christ embodied. We become an embodiment of the gospel. And so who we are should reflect the message of the gospel. So when, when we are making our decisions, are we making decisions like the sheep who are looking around themselves and seeing people that are in need and seeing people that need to be loved and showing them that love, the love that God wants to show them. Are we being those people? Or are we condemning people with the law? Are we fencing people out? Are we saying, you're not one of us? The gospel is not for you? Do we show people that Christ has made us into new creations, new creatures, people that, aren't, people that don't care about being better than you? People that don't care about being right when other people are wrong. Are we people of humility? We need, to, we need to understand that the law and the gospel are not the same thing. 
I was, I was thinking of an illustration that might reflect this. When we talk about Jesus as the spring of living waters, like he talks about in John 4, he's talking about a source of life. And I was thinking that's a very different image than the law, which is a fence, which is a hedge. It's like there is a garden, which is life, a life of righteousness, a life that is pleasing before God. In the center of the garden is a fountain, and that fountain springs up with eternal water that waters the entire garden and makes it beautiful and makes it grow and makes it a lively place. But outside the garden, on the outer edge of that garden, is a hedge, and that hedge is the law. And if you're on the outside of the hedge, you are not in the garden. But if you are inside the hedge, you are. You are righteous. In other words, if you are outside the law, you know you're condemned. If you're inside the law, if you are, have satisfied the law, you're righteous. But, how, but oftentimes what I think we do as believers, as people who read the Scriptures and who read all the commandments in the Old Testament and, and the admonitions in the New Testament, we look at the Scriptures and we say, what do I need to do? And that's like leaning against the hedge. That's like looking at the hedge and saying, hey, hedge, how can I be in the garden? Sometimes we, we think, oh, I can get closer to the hedge. I can lean up against it here, maybe. And all the time we're forgetting that the life that's in that garden doesn't come from the hedge. It comes from the fountain. The life doesn't come from the law. Life comes from Christ. And so if we are walking towards Christ, if we are pursuing Christ, the hedge becomes a non-entity. We're not looking at it anymore. We are looking to the fountain that gives us life. The gospel is a real-life, practical outworking of the, the message of redemption. And because of that, it means that our lifestyle should reflect our inner transformation. It should reflect the, the priorities that we've put in place. I read an author when I was studying back in uh, my undergrad, J.K. Smith. Um, something he talks about is that our, desire, our hearts will always desire something. Our hearts will always seek to worship something. We will always be pointed at something all the time. And what we desire will in turn shape our lives and how we live it out. And so we are what we love. And when we love ourselves, that is reflected by the fruits. We become wolves in sheep's clothing. But when we are aiming our hearts at Christ and at understanding Him and at, at being in relationship with Him, being righteous before Him because of Him, then we are going to be transformed internally because our desires are going to be shaped by the thing that we love. Our beliefs are lived out. That's, that's the thing. It's like what we believe is what we do. We can't just believe something and live a different life. It's like me saying, I believe that the parachute will open when I jump out of the plane and then finally getting up to the top of the flight and not jumping out because we don't actually trust that parachute to open when we jump out of the plane. It's like saying that I believe God will take care of my needs and then in a moment of, of decision saying I don't think I'm going to actually give away 
this, uh, this money or this food or this thing that I need because we don't actually believe God is going to take care of our needs. Like when we're, we're called to make hard decisions, what do we actually believe in those moments of crisis? Do we believe that God will do what he says? Do we believe that Jesus is real and interceding on our behalf? Do we believe that the, the Spirit goes before us to change people such that when we follow up to reap the harvest, there will be a positive response? How do we actually live? And does our life reflect our professed beliefs? This is another way we can examine ourselves. Is what I am doing a reflection of what I say I believe? Or is it a reflection of a deeper truth that I'm secretly holding on to? When people look at us, do they see the righteousness of Christ? Do they see the character of Christ? How is it that how is it that one of the first things people think of when they hear the word Christian is they think of somebody who is boxing them out? They're thinking of someone who is lording it over them. Is that what Christ did? Now we know, we know that Christ didn't, he didn't mince words when he was talking with people. But he did that because he wanted them to know and understand how much they were loved, not how much they were wrong. He was, he was flagging people's needs to them and then giving them a place to go. Is that, is that the people we are? Are we just putting on sheep's clothing? Are we looking, are we looking for ways to, to devour, to feed ourselves? Or are we one with the Lamb of God? Let's pray. Dear Father, you have given us Christ. You have given us Jesus. You have given us the only perfect person, the only perfect man, so that we can submit ourselves, surrender ourselves, throw ourselves at his feet, that he may give us his righteousness, that he may give us the, the standing that he has so that we can stand before you. Dear Father, please, by your Spirit, speak to our hearts. Let us not acknowledge the gospel that you have given us. Let us instead examine ourselves and see where we have been leaning on our own understanding. And let us surrender again to you. Let us be people that live transformed lives. Let us embrace our identity as your children and as your flock. Let us follow you faithfully with trust and with assurance that what Christ has done for us is enough. Let us boldly, let us boldly seek to demonstrate that to those who are not yet part of your flock. Let us let us see how we may embody Jesus to people just as he has embodied you to us. Dear Father, I pray that we would be people of hope and that we would be people who invite because you have invited us. We thank you, Father, for the, the beauty that is Jesus.
And we thank you for the, the hope that is in your gospel. Let us be a people transformed. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.